Good morning. How are we doing? <laughs> Good. We awake. Stayed up late at the Potato Festival last night, maybe some of us. It's great to see you guys. Thank you for being here. I hope that you guys enjoyed the worship. I always tell um, you guys how much I love the worship, not just because I'm biased and I work here, but you know, they put in so much time, so much effort to make that happen and to make it great on a weekly basis and lead us to the throne of God. So we're grateful for them. Uh, for those of you who may not know, my name is Preston Waller. I'm the student pastor here, and I am uh, having the privilege of honor honor of leading our 6th through 12th graders, but also being able to lead us in part five of our Fresh Faith series today. If you're new or you haven't joined us for this series yet, uh, I'm not going to give you a recap because the longer we go, it's going to take more of your time for me to recap it. You can always rewatch the past four weeks on our YouTube channel. We give them to you for free there. Uh, just a quick recap of what the series is about, though. This series is about talking about our faith crisis as individuals, as a society, about saying that the pandemic really has in a lot of ways drained our world, drained our lives. And in a very real way, the pandemic has drained our faith. And we want to, in a real way, look at what it means to create and sustain fresh faith again. And I said the main way we're going to do this in week one is that we're going to look at the kingdom of God and what that means and what that is. The kingdom of God in a very simple way is God's rule and reign over everything in this world, including you and I and our lives. That God is leading us down narrow, countercultural, hard paths, but he's leading us down those paths for our betterment for our joy, and that the world has a comfortable, wide, easy path. But as we walk down that path, we realize things in our lives begin to decay and die. And then last week, I talked about the mission of God. What is God's mission? I basically said that God's mission and what God is trying to accomplish here in this world is three main things. He's trying to redeem all people, to save us from darkness and bring us into light. He is trying to renew us. He's trying to strengthen and encourage us on a daily basis. And then third, he's trying to restore all parts of our lives back to how it was intended to be in Genesis 1. And, and the reason I recap last week's is because this week has a lot to do with last week. Last week's question was, what is God trying to accomplish? And I kind of went through that. Today's question is, what role do you and I play in God's mission? Right? Because we are trying to be a part of what God's doing in this world, in our community, in our lives, in our workplaces, in our homes. And what we too often can think when we hear a message like last week is, wow, great, go God, like I'm cheering them on, like go redeem, restore and renew, do your thing. We're gonna cheer for you the whole way. But we don't realize that God is actually, his primary way of redeeming, renewing and restoring this world is through you and through me and through our lives. I said in week three that, in Genesis 1, God said, you and I are image bearers of him, which means we have intrinsic value that's higher than anything else in this universe. But it also means practically that you and I are representatives of God to the communities and workplaces and families around us, that we represent God, that we in a way are agents for God wherever we go. So today I want to talk about how you and I can be a part of being on mission, living on mission wherever we go. I heard it said before by uh, J.D. Greer at Summit Church in Raleigh. I always love what he says about the church. And when he says the church, he doesn't mean the building Forest Park Church, but he means you and I as followers of Christ. He says that when God wants to accomplish his mission, he, the church is plan A and there is no plan B. 
that you and I are the tools God wants to use to change the world and make a difference. So today what I want to do is I want to look in a very general view of what it means for you and I to be on mission, to live on mission, to help God accomplish these things in this world. And then I want to break it down very practically at the end. So the passage I want to look at today, and you'll probably know this passage if you grew up in church or you've spent any time in church in your life before. Uh, Christians refer to this passage as the Great Commission. It comes from Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And this is Jesus post-resurrection talking to his, his disciples right before he is to go back to heaven. He says this, he says, Jesus came near to them and said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want us just to really quickly break this commission down. Uh, this commission is important because how does Jesus start out this statement? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Before Jesus says anything about what we're to do, he reminds people that he is king and he is Lord and that he rules and reigns over all things. He's making a king statement here that I am in charge. I am ruling. I have all authority over every particle in this universe and all the universes we haven't discovered yet. I am in charge and have the utmost authority over everything. And why is that important? Well, it's important because whatever Jesus is to say next after making such a claim like that, you can take to the bank. You can guarantee it is going to happen. So if Jesus, I always say this because it's funny. If Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore, tomorrow morning when you wake up, pigs will fly. Well, when you wake up tomorrow, you should have a rifle in one hand and a frying pan in the other and expect that Jesus said it is going to come, so expect it to come. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. But what does he tell us to do? He tells us to go. To go, therefore, and make what? Disciples. I love the wording because he did not say go and make converts. He did not say go and make people say, I believe in Jesus. Let's be real. You and I are blessed to live in America, and we live in the Bible Belt where everybody and their mom is a Christian, whether they really are or not. Jesus is not interested in you living on mission so that you can get people to say, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. That, that takes no effort. That takes no commitment. Even the demons believe who God is. And so we must realize that being a disciple means, and this is why it's important if you were here last week, that it means to surrender all parts of your life down at the foot of the cross and say, I am going to follow Christ and he can have all parts of my life and he can restore all parts of my life. So Jesus wants us to go and make disciples, people who would lay everything they own, everything they have down at the cross and say, I'm all in to follow Jesus. And then he reminds them at the end, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that's so important because as you begin to do these things, as you begin to go, life will get difficult. You will be criticized, you may be ostracized, you may have friends distance themselves from you. And in those moments of fear, in those moments of hardships, Jesus is reminding us, I'm with you. I, I'm beside you in the pain, I'm beside you in the suffering, I'm beside you when you feel lonely, like there's no one next to you and no one understands you. I am with you always. Uh, 
I'll, I'll go back real quick. I, I kind of missed one thing. Uh, the go part there, and this is what I really want to hone in on just for the next two minutes. Go, Greek-wise, can mean one of two things. Historically, Greek scholars have uh, interpreted that word go as one of two things. In, in a very real way, it's the same thing, but I want to use it, the one I believe will help us understand it better today. And I've taken three semesters of Greek, okay? So that means I know almost nothing about Greek. So you can trust me when I tell you that this is true. And if you don't believe me, you can Google it. Uh, the first way that most people interpret go by the, the Greek word is that go means Go. <laughs> you don't have to take Greek to know that, okay? Go means go. Just go. But, but there's another translation of what go means that I think is not different, but it's better to help us understand what the Great Commission is about. Go can also be translated this way, as you go. And why is that important? Because you and I as humans have an inclination and a desire to naturally want to stay where we're at, to stay comfortable, to stay put, to not step out of our comfort zones, to naturally just, just, just stay where we're at instead of going. And what I think we can miss in the Great Commission that's so important is oftentimes when we read and learn about the Great Commission, it's about missions. Hey, we're going to Ecuador. Hey, we're going to Uganda. Hey, we're going across the country to Arizona to bring the gospel. This is what the Great Commission is all about. Get up, pack your bags, get on a plane and go. And let me say this, the Great Commission is about that in a very real way. That is a very big part of what God is trying to tell us in the Great Commission. But today what I want to remind us of is that in a more real way, God is saying, as you go, take your faith with you which means you don't have to get up, get on a plane and go to a third world country to take your faith with you. God is saying, as you wake up, as you go about your daily routine, take your faith with you to all spheres. When you wake up in the morning and you get ready and you go to work, take your faith with you to work. When you go out to lunch with your coworkers, take your faith with you. When you go and get dinner with your friends, take your faith with you. When you go to a potato festival, take your faith with you. When you're hanging out with your friends on Tuesday night at Ghost Harbor, take your faith with you wherever you go. God is saying to us in a very real way, as you go, as you live your life, as you go through your routine, take me with you everywhere. And we must realize that we have to fight that inclination to stay and to be comfortable because a lot of the reasons some of us don't have fresh faith is because we don't, if we're honest, really care that much that our faith is decaying. Preston, man, my, my finances are up, my portfolio's up, my marriage is actually on the rise, my relationships with my kids is getting better. Sure, my faith is a little dead right at the moment, but everything else is great. So what does it matter? And Jesus is going to remind us today about why faith and action is so important. If you want fresh faith, you must exercise it. You must use it. And you must use it more than once a year when you go to Ecuador. You must use it every day. So I want to look at a parable, not really a parable, an analogy that Jesus used in his Sermon on the Mount today. He gives us two pictures of how you and I are to bring our faith with us wherever we go. The first one comes from Matthew 5, verse 13. This comes in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount uh, he's giving to his people. And he says this, you are the salt of the earth. 
But if the salt should lose its taste, how could it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And Jesus is saying in the first picture he's painting of you and I is that you and I as Christ followers are salt of the earth. And we may not really know what that means, right? It's very metaphorical. So today I want to show you three ways that Jesus is trying to tell us we are to bring our faith with us. There are three primary ways that you and I can understand salt's function. The first two ways are the way you probably understand salt. And then the third way I want to show us today is how the people in Jesus' time would have understood this analogy that they are salt of the earth. So obviously the first way salt acts and functions is salt is meant for flavoring. It is meant for enhancement, right? That we salt our food after or before we, we cook it. And if you are in here and all you ever put seasoning on your food is salt, then we need to expand your palate because salt is good, but it's definitely not enough seasoning. Okay, we need to get more in there. But salt's primary function, as we understand it, is, is enhancement. It brings more flavor to the food we're eating. And in that picture, Jesus is trying to tell you and I that as we go, every atmosphere, every environment you enter into should be better because you're there. It should be better because you're there. That means when you go into work tomorrow, they, the way you act, the way you live, as you bring your faith with you should be making your workplace a better place. The way you work, the way you talk, the way you uh, try to go above and beyond expectations should be communicating to the people around you in your homes, in your workplaces, in your communities that because I am here and my faith is with me, we're better because of that. That as you quit, as you leave, there should be a, whoa, we're missing something here. That you and I as Christ followers are to be the best workers. We are to be the most faithful givers. We are to love our community the best above everyone else. That we as salt are to enhance every atmosphere, every environment, every home, every community we enter into. We are enhancers. We enhance the places that we live. The second way in which we understand salt is that salt acts as a, a preservation. It, it's prevention. And maybe you knew this, maybe you didn't. One of the things that we definitely have that they didn't have in Jesus's day was deep freezers, right? That when we buy meat or when we buy something that goes bad, if like for instance, you bought ground beef and you were supposed to cook it for dinner Friday and it went bad yesterday. Well, if you don't have time to cook it because you went out to eat at the potato festival, you may put that meat in the freezer, right? Because you want to prevent it from going bad. And you'll pull it back out next week, dethawed, and cook it then. But you're using your deep freezer primarily to prevent decay. And in the same way, they did something like that in Jesus' day. They would rub salt into their fish, salt into their meat to prevent it from decaying, to give it another day or two before it went bad. That salt was ingrained within their food so that they could get another day out of it. They could get another day or two out of their fish that they were going to cook or they had cooked. And in the same way, you and I are to be prevention against decay in the places you and I reside. That means that when we walk into work and we don't like our job and we don't like our boss, but our coworkers are constantly gossiping, constantly undermining, constantly insubordinate, that we don't feed into that that you and I are to preserve goodness wherever we go and fight death and fight corruption and fight decay in all spheres that we find ourselves. That we shouldn't be adding to the problems, adding to the decay, adding to the death, adding to the corruption where we go in our homes and our communities, 
but that we should be preventing these things by fighting against the things that are bad, fighting against the injustice in our world. And this is the second way in which we understand salt's function. The third way that I wanna go over right now is the way that everyone that was listening to Jesus talk would have primarily understood what he meant. And that, that is that salt acts as a fertilizer. It acts for provision. It, the, so in the ancient civilizations then and later, uh, many civilizations used salt as a fertilizer for soil. And depending on the conditions, it could help the ground retain its water, it, which makes fields easier to plow. Salt would help release minerals. It, for plants, it would kill weeds. It would protect crops from diseases. It would also stimulate growth and increase yields. That in those days, salt's primary function was to be provision for the ground, to help stimulate growth in unexpected environments. That in a very real way, you and I are as Christ followers to enter into the hard soil of our world. You and I are meant to enter into the messiness of other people's lives, of our community, and help stimulate and bring about growth in unlikely areas. That that is our function, right? What if I told you that God wanted to use you to help eliminate the homelessness problem in Elizabeth City? What if I told you that God's primary way he wants you to use your faith is to help eliminate the drug abuse and the violence that's going on in our community? That we didn't have to wait on a government or we didn't have to wait on law enforcement, but that you and I in such as a time as this could be salt of the earth by stimulating and bringing about growth in unexpected areas, in unexpected environments where we feel like there is no hope, that we could bring the hope and we could see growth. We could see marriages revived. We could see economies go up. We could see restoration and renewal and redemption of souls take place in unlikely areas because we are faithful to be salt of the earth and we are faithful to take our faith wherever we go. That this is what it means to be salt. You and I are to be enhancers. We're also to prevent decay. And you and I are in a very real way to bring about growth wherever we go. Jesus obviously ended that passage. I won't go back to it, but he ended the 13, uh, verse 13 by saying, uh, if salt were to lose its saltiness or its taste, it would be good for nothing and it would be wasteful. Uh, really quickly, the, the number one way that you and I are gonna lose our effectiveness as God's agents with our faith is when we rely too much on what people think of us. Everyone in here, everyone watching online, and especially myself here on the stage as a pastor, have a natural desire within all of us as human beings to be liked and loved and accepted by all people. And, and, and if, when I say that statement internally, you're kind of talking to yourself and you're saying, not me, pastor. Mm -mm. I don't care what people think. I don't care that people like me. I don't care that people even care about what I'm going through. That right there tells me you do because the fact that you have to rebuttal me to prove your point shows that you're scared that people would see you weaker because you care about what they think. We all have a natural desire to be liked. Hey, there is nothing wrong with wanting to be liked, loved, accepted for who you are. That is natural as human beings. But it can be dangerous when it comes to us being affected with our faith if we allow it to determine our saltiness and how we bring our faith with us. We are oftentimes tempted to give our faith, tempted to give Jesus a makeover to make him fit in better with our culture. 
and I'm telling you, the more you're willing to make Jesus something he's not so that you can be accepted, so that you don't get pushback on your faith, the more likely you are to lose your effectiveness as a Christian wherever you go. We must present Jesus as he is, a God who loves, a God who accepts, a God who says, come to me, drop everything you're trying to pursue and pursue me instead. When, but we want to make our faith cool. I, I'm in youth ministry, okay? My whole job to some degree is trying to make Jesus cool. So teenagers like him. Hey, when we try to make Jesus cool, or we try to make our faith hip, or we try to make it where no one pushes back on our faith, man, that is never going to be the case. I want to tell you historically, Christianity has never been a very popular religion. It has never been widely accepted for the truth of what it is. You and I must realize that if we're to follow Christ, there will always be pushback from someone, some body, or some group. But we cannot make over our God to make him fit in with the culture. And when we do that for the fear of not being liked and not being accepted because of our faith, we lose our saltiness. We lose our effectiveness. This is the first analogy that Jesus gives us as to how you and I are to bring our faith with us as we go. The second picture he paints in the three verses following verse 13, he says this, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that you may see your good works, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. I want to get something straight before I dive into what this means. You and I are not the light of the world. We are a light of the world, but Jesus has came and proclaimed that he is the light of the world. You and I are just a light. The best way I can describe what Jesus is trying to say when he says you are the light of the world is this way. When I heard it this way, it completely transformed how I understood this passage. A little bit of science, science class for everybody. The sun, as we look up at it during the day, literally will blind you. If you stare at the sun long enough, you will go blind. It is just too powerful of a light in and of itself. It provides too much heat. Anyone gets sunburned. I got sunburned Friday at the beach from the sun's powerful rays. It's too powerful. But when we look up at the moon at night, right, the light from the moon is soft. We can stare at it for a while and it won't really hurt us as bad and make our eyes go dim. The reason for that is I want you to know that the moon has no light, right? The moon doesn't have light in and of itself. It has no light. The light that you see from the moon is not its own light, but the, the light of the sun reflecting off of it back down to us. So in a very real way, the light that this moon reflects to us is not, it's not its own light, but a different light shining through it. So in a very real way, the light that we are to shine to our communities, to our wives, to our workplaces is not our light, but it is a light that shines through us because of the light from God. In a very real way, practically speaking, Jesus is the sun and you and I are the moon. By ourselves, on our own, we have no light. But because of Jesus, his light shines through us and we're able to reflect that to the people and places around us. This is who we are called to be, light of the world. So what does it mean to be the light of the world, Preston? If, if you're saying be the light of the world, what does that practically look like? Practically speaking, light of the world is just living a life of light means doing and living by the Beatitudes that are found in Matthew 4. I'm not going to spend too much time on these because I had a message last May that you can find that goes deeper into these. But I want to quickly go over what these Beatitudes mean. Poor in spirit simply means that you and I 
understand that the grace of God that's been given to us is not something we deserve. Poor in spirit means that I would stand before anyone and say the grace of God and the, the things that he gives me, the blessings I have, I never deserved them. I didn't earn them. There's nothing I could have done to earn them. It was freely given to me and I don't deserve them, but by God's grace, I was given these things. Mourning and comforting literally just means that you take the weight of your sin, the weight of your mistakes seriously. The biggest pet peeve I have, not as a pastor, but as a, as a person is when I talk to people and, and they can't ever admit that they made some mistake in a situation. We know people like this, I'm sure you do. That every time you talk to them, every situation they're going through, everything bad that's happening in their life is not their own fault, but something that happened to them and something someone else did to them. And in some ways that is true. There are situations in our life where we really don't play a part in making it bad. But if you are to be mature in your faith, we must stand before God and say, I've made some mistakes. Some of the mess I'm in is not a result of what people have done to me or a bad flip of the coin, bad luck, but it's because of mistakes I've made. And when we mourn our sin, we take it seriously. We say, we have to be serious. I can't respond that way to my wife. Hey, I can't talk that way to someone. Hey, I need to be more careful about what I post or what I don't post. Hey, I need to think through before I really act on my feelings. That we seriously consider the weight and, and how powerful our mistakes and sin are. Uh, meekness. Meekness, the best way I can describe it to you, simply means strength under control. The best analogy I can give you for what meekness looks like actually happened last Sunday at our next night. So I, I'm a student pastor here, as many of you know, um, and oftentimes I love to play pickup sports with our kids at next nights. Last Sunday we were playing pickup ball and I was on a team and, you know, these kids are like short, 110 pounds. And we were playing full court and I stood in the paint and I kind of stood like this, no foul, no nothing. And a kid ran into me. Kid's about 115 pounds. You can tell I'm not 115 pounds. <laughs> and when they ran into me, I think they were kind of shocked by how like sturdy I was. They kind of bounced back or like, whoa, I thought he would move a little bit or give a little bit. I didn't foul him. I just stood there like this the whole time. Now, if I were to foul him, like I would foul someone my own size or bigger than me, an elbow, 90s pistons to the jaw, maybe swiping at the ball, pushing them a little bit. If I were to use my real strength to foul those kids who are half my size, I could do real damage to them. But I didn't use the extent of my real strength. Why? Because it was for the benefit of the kids that I didn't. So meekness simply means that we don't throw our weight around to get what we want. We simply use our strength and our influence if we're going to use it for the benefit of the people around us. That meek people don't demand their way, but they seek to serve and reserve their strength to help and bless people around them. Hunger and thirst for righteousness just simply means that we're desperate for the things that God is desperate for. You and I are desperate to be like Jesus and to follow in the steps that Jesus has laid out before us. Merciful is learning to extend mercy to others, which means we don't hold grudges. That we, if we're gonna be light of the world, we don't hold grudges. We forgive. We're people who love to receive the mercy from God, but we hate to extend it to people who wrong us. We love to extend mercy to the people who didn't really do anything. We want mercy from God. God, I messed up. Can you give me mercy? But when it's time to show that mercy to other people who really hurt us, we want to reserve forgiveness for a different day or a different person. And we don't want to extend the same mercy afforded to us by the cross. And we become cynical people who hold grudges and don't learn to forgive. God is saying, you can't receive my mercy and not extend it at the same time to other people. Pure in heart simply means that you and I as Christ followers should have high character. 
We should have integrity that in a very real way, God is not interested so much with what you do, but who you're becoming. That God's more concerned about the root problem and not the symptoms. As a society, we love to treat the symptoms. We love to treat our actions, but God is saying, go to the heart. Look at your attitude, look at your mindset, look who you're surrounding yourself with, look what you're allowing to take root in your mind and in your heart and treat the root problem of your actions. Don't just treat your actions. God's saying my followers must be serious about integrity and serious about high quality character. Peacemakers, that should be simple, that you and I extend the peace of God to others, not make things worse. God is an agent of peace, not an agent of chaos. But so often, what do we do? We kind of, if we're not careful, pour gasoline on the fire. Someone comments something nasty under our post, or we malign and make fun of people who are different, believe different, are on different political spectrums than we are. And we find ourselves posting, talking about living with attitudes that are not peaceful towards others. That you and I, as we enter into spaces, should be bringing peace to all people, to all situations, to all circumstances, that we should be bearers of peace. Persecuted for Jesus' sake just basically means that you learn to suffer with a purpose. You learn to suffer for a purpose, knowing that God put joy in your heart to be had in the midst of suffering, that you can still have joy, still follow God in the midst of the toughest times of your life. The easiest thing you and I can do is follow Jesus when life is great. It takes no faith. But when suffering comes and it will come, how do you respond? How do you follow? How do you lean in? Do you still have joy in the midst of those circumstances. This is what it means to live as a light. Can you imagine if someone who hates God and hates the church would see you consistently live this way with your wife and children, in your workplaces, with those on the different aisle of you politically? What could they say against you if you walked into work every day and said, hey, uh, I don't deserve anything that you're about to give me. In fact, I know I've made mis some mistakes here and I'm going to fix them and I'm going to take them seriously. Hey, I'm going to use the influence I have to bless people around me. Hey, I'm going to be serious about following God. Hey, I I'm going to forgive people when they mess up. I'm going to take my character seriously and have integrity. I'm going to bring peace to all the situations that come about me in the next eight-hour shift. I'm going to learn to suffer well and follow Jesus even when work sucks. What could someone say if you consistently lived a life like that? There would be no charge brought against you. No one could say your faith didn't make a difference. No one could say your faith wasn't real to you because they see your light shining brightly. We must learn to live and let our light shine, but we can only do it when we begin to reflect the Beatitudes that Jesus tells us to pursue. And this is what it means for us to be and take our faith as we go. As you and I go as the church, we should take our faith with us. We should be salt of the earth. We should be light of the world. This is what Jesus tells us to do and tells us to be. And as I, I get ready to wrap up now, I want to give you three very practical ways you can do this on a daily basis because these are very generic as much as they sound generic. I want to give you three practical ways that you can put this into action today, tomorrow, next Sunday. The first practice I believe that you and I should be serious about doing on a daily basis is the biblical uh, action of hospitality. Of hospitality. And, and what's so tough about that is that you and I and Martha Stewart of all people have made this something that it's not. Hospitality is not throwing a dinner party 
playing some games, laughing, eating some good steak, having a couple glasses of wine and going home. That's not what biblical hospitality is. Biblical hospitality simply defined as speaking, loving strangers, treating fellow believers, orphans, widows, the poor, refugees, social outcasts, and even your own enemies as if they were your own family. Learning to treat all people with biblical hospitality means to love and speak life over all people, even the ones who hate you the most. And it's hard for us to understand that to some degree because we kind of get in a routine of our groups. We like these people. These people are fun to hang out with and we kind of get our clicks whether we know it or not. If your home is open to any race at all times, if your home is consistently open to, to people who are on the other end of the political spectrum as you, if your home is open to people that think, act, and even believe differently than you on a consistent basis, how could every, anyone ever come to you and say you're prejudiced? Were you saying you only invite people into your home and hospitable them so no one could call you a racist? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we do those things because the gospel demands that we do those things. Because Jesus was hospitable to us. Because Jesus was hospitable to someone who wanted nothing to do with him. My whole testimony last week, I went into it, that I wanted nothing to do with God. In fact, I would tell everyone, anyone, I didn't care for church. I didn't care for God. I was just happy living my life. But God showed me hospitality and took me in when I didn't deserve it. And because of the gospel, you and I must live an open-handed, open home, open resource life. That all that I have, all that I own is for the benefit of people. Just some reflective questions before I move on. And these are, you can think through them and you may answer them in the, in the way I would hope you would answer them. But, but think through this seriously. Who, who are you eating with on a consistent basis? Like when you think about your week, who is the crowd you're consistently eating with? Who are the people you're consistently hanging out with? Who are the people you're consistently inviting over? Are they people that provide you something or could provide you something? Are they people that are different than you in almost every aspect of life? Are they a lot like you? If you were honest, with, is your group, is your circle pretty much a lot of who you are? All kind of lean this way, all kind of believe this way, all kind of have the same social economic status, all kind of practice the same things I do. By God's grace, you and I are to make diversity in our circles so that those people can experience the hope of our faith that we would love them where they're at and we would enter into the mess by inviting them into our lives and inviting them to be a part of everything we're a part of on a weekly basis. So that's the first thing. The second thing that you and I, I think, should really practice, and this sounds very basic, but it's the practice of evangelism. It's the practice of sharing our faith. And I want to tell you today that you and I, and I've been guilty of this too, have made sharing our faith more complicated than it should be. It doesn't have to be as complicated as what we may think when I say evangelism. I'm not telling you to go to work, sit down with your coworker and say, I just want, let's just have a talk. Like, do you, you, read, you read the book of Romans? Do you know what Romans Road is? Do you know about God's sovereignty over Israel? Do you, did, you, did you know that you were made in the image of God? Would you say you're a sinner? Okay, let's pray this prayer together. Okay, thank you, God, that I, I'm a sinner and that you saved me. It doesn't have to be that complicated. Let, let me just practically tell you what sharing your faith could look like at work. You walk into work and you've built friendships with somebody as, as a coworker for the last two to three years, whoever that may be. 
you have a friendship that kind of, you love being on the same shift as they do. You kind of get along, you laugh, you joke together. God is trying to use that relationship that you can speak life into them. So one day, here's what I want you to do. I literally want you to walk up to them this week and I want you to just one-on-one say, hey, uh, God has put it on my heart that I should be praying for you. Is there anything I can pray for you about? And if they give you an answer, that's great. If they don't, ask again next week. When they give you an answer, here's the key. I don't want you to miss this. When they tell you what you should be praying for, here's the big secret. Pray for them. Actually pray for them. Don't just say, I'll be praying for you then, brother. And walk away and never think of them again until you see them at work tomorrow. Literally, I want you to go home. I want you to get serious. I want you to drop to your knees and before a holy God, plead on behalf of this person, whatever they're going through. Go to God consistently and plead on their behalf and say, God, please, I'm begging you to move. Move in this way. Answer their prayers. Help them. And then in two weeks, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to them and follow up. All I want you to say is, hey, I've been praying for you. And if you haven't been praying for them, then don't say that phrase. But I, literally, I've been praying for you. And I, I just want to get an update. What's going on? Any answers? Anything happened over the last two weeks I wasn't aware of? They got one for you? Great. If not, continue to pray. And here's what I've learned. We are blessed to live in the Bible Belt. Like I said before, everyone here is a Christian, whether they believe it or actually are or not. I've never in six years of ministry ever went up to someone and said, how can I pray for you and been met with, how dare you, sir? That is outrageous. Why would you ask me such an outlandish thing that you could pray for me? It doesn't happen. People will take prayer even if they don't believe in the same God as you. All you have to do is simply ask, how can I pray for you? And pray for them. And then check in in a couple weeks and continuously do that to build a relationship, to share your faith through how you love them. It doesn't have to be complicated. You don't have to be a biblical expeter that can break down text for them. Love people, share your faith, pray for them. It doesn't have to be that complicated. And then the last thing that I believe that you and I should be practicing is the art of faithful presence. And here's what faithful presence is. Uh, there was a story of a, a brand new person who decided to follow Jesus. And he went up to the great reformer, Martin Luther, and asked him a question. If you don't know who Martin Luther is, he's a guy who nailed 95 theses to the door. Um, he went up to Luther and he asked him a question. He said, now that I am following Christ, how can I faithfully serve him on a daily basis? And Luther's response, I think, is telling. He's, he asked him a question. Instead, he said, what do you do for a living? He said, I'm a cobbler, I, I sell shoes. And Luther's response is so important for us to get today. He said, then make a great shoe and sell it at a fair price. Make a great shoe and sell it at a fair price. That you faithfully loving and serving God doesn't have to be going on a mission trip. It, make a great shoe and sell it at a fair price. Here's what I know about how you and I think about people. You can be a, the most hospitable Christian in the world you can have the most diverse crowd of people, those who believe and those who don't believe. You could share your faith at work every week and you can love people where they're at. But all that work goes out the window if you're a bum at work. If you're lazy, if you don't work hard, if you're the person who always complains but never does anything about it, if you're the man who never meets deadlines when you're told to meet deadlines consistently, if you're the woman who's always late to meetings, even though you put them in your calendar 50 times, all that you're building up to shine your light and be salt for your communities and your workplaces, go out the window if you're not willing to work hard and be fair 
and love people and make a great shoe and sell it at a fair price. It doesn't have to be as complicated as we think it is with being salt and light of the world. Man, work hard, love your family, pray for others, let your light shine in the small and the dark places that you surround yourself in on a daily basis. And this is what it means for you and I to be that way. Faithful presence is us as human beings fulfilling our God-given obligation to work hard, seek to serve all, and walk in humility that is attractive to all people. So this is what it means for us. The last thing I want to I talk about before I dismiss you now is I've talked about how you and I can be the church, can be the hands and feet of Christ, that as we go, we can be salt of the earth and we can be light of the world. This is what it means individually for you and I today. But as I end, I want to just humbly come before everybody and just tell us how Forest Park Church is planning to be light and salt today and in the future, what we're doing currently and what we hope to do as we continue as a church. Here's just some of the ways that we're trying to be salt and light in our community. We're starting back up a Love Thy City event. If you weren't here when we did Love Thy City last time, we, it's just our initiative to go into Elizabeth City and love our community by projects and service projects, wherever it may be. Last time, I think we went to the laundromat and just paid for a bunch of people to have free laundry for the day. That's just an example. We're going to have another Love Thy City in September. And what we're wanting to do is go out and love and serve people. And guess what? Not ask for anything in return. Not say, okay, now that I've scratched your back, will you start coming to Forest Park? Will you start giving here? We're not doing it for that reason. We're doing it to be salt and light. We have overseas mission trips that happen every year, Ecuador and sometimes Uganda, that we're taking our faith with us across the country to people who don't have hospitals, don't have consistent meals, and don't have great education so that we can love them with our faith. We have a local food outreach that meets every other Thursday at the outreach building. And there are ladies over there that faithfully every Thursday package food for people who can't afford groceries and they give it out for free. And one of the prayers that Lisa who leads that has for that food outreach is that it would turn into more of a grocery store that as hopefully people continue to give and consistently step up to serve and feed into Forest Park, that we'd be able to expand it into an, an actual grocery store where those who need it can come and shop for free instead of just being handed a box of stuff they may or may not need. But that's one way we're serving the community. We have plenty of ministries that you could be involved in to be salt and light. The Harbor Young Adults Ministry is something I've started up last April and, and we're expanding. Hopefully as we start back up in August when college is back in session, I'm looking for two to three people who would say, I will be salt and I will be light and I will love college and young adults by leading a small group for them. We have Kid Venture who needs volunteers more now than ever, who you could say, I'm not going back there to babysit a kid. I'm going back there so I can use my faith to make those kids know Jesus on their level. And I will faithfully serve as salt, as light, so they can know Jesus in a better way that hopefully they'll take with them for the rest of their life. We have my student ministry. I won't give you too much because it seems like a shameless plug at this point. But man, we love our 6th to 12th graders. We pour into them twice a week through small groups and through activities. We take them to summer camp so that Jesus can transform their life. Man, we have a first impressions team who literally is the almost ex clearest example we have of what it means to be hospitable to people to love people, to smile, to answer questions, to walk with them through what it means to be a new here person. We have worship and production. That's part of giving us the great experience we have here on Sunday morning, that you could use your tools, you can use your faith to help people worship Jesus in an authentic way. 
that you could be a consistent giver, that as you give, we're actually able to expand and do more than just this list. We're, like I said, able to transform the outreach into actually a grocery store, for example, that we're able to do Love Thy City more than once a year because we have consistent givers. Man, these are just some of the ways that we are or are trying to be salt and light for the community. And the reality is Forest Park Church is not this building. It's you and me. And my plea for you is to start being a part of it to actually use your faith, exercise your faith. You don't have to have any faith to come here once a month and sit in a seat and listen to some dummy talk on stage. Not you, Scott, me. (laughs) I was gonna get roasted for that later. It doesn't take any faith to come here once a month and not get plugged in and not give. It takes faith to give, to step up and say, I'll serve once a month even though I don't know how great I am at leading kids. It takes faith. And if you won't exercise your faith, your faith will die. And the less you use your faith, the more you'll find yourself in pits, the more you find yourself in seasons where you don't feel close to God. These are just some, again, some of the ways that we are trying to love and bless our city. Because we believe God's up to something here. We may not see it right now, but I believe that God's actually using this pandemic to transform how Forest Park does mission. And I want you to be a part of it. We have first step today for anyone who's not ever known anything deep about Forest Park. We'd love for you to come from 4 to 6 p.m. so that you can learn more about what it means to be salt and light on a consistent basis. And you may be listening to me and saying, ah, it doesn't really sound for me. Hey, I'll be praying for you. Literally, I'll be praying that God would move in your heart this week to step up and give, to step up and serve in a real way that will use your faith in mighty ways to bless people so that they can meet Jesus in a way they need today. God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for these people. I pray that as we go, God, we wouldn't go and leave our faith in the seats, but God, that as we leave this place, we would take our faith with us. God, help me as a leader take my faith with us. Help me be an example for what it means to follow Jesus and live on mission. God, there's so much hurt, there's so much darkness in this world, and God, we need light more than ever. We need salt more than ever, God, and we know the primary way you're gonna redeem, restore, and renew this community is through my life and through the lives of the people in this room. Help us take our faith seriously, God. Help us be what you've called us to be and help us love people where they're at. Would you bless us as we go and would you allow us to have a great rest of the day? We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Awesome, guys, thank you. You can, uh, we have... I said this last week, we still have 36 items for VBS that need to be purchased. Most items are $10 and over, under, under. If you would consider please either registering your kid for VBS or taking one of the cards on the lobby window on your way out, Allison would greatly appreciate it. Love you guys.